The words that I'd like to draw your attention to are found once again in the book of Colossians. I'm going to read Colossians 3, 12 through 14, but we'll confine ourselves to just looking at verse 12. Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, even as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Please pray with me again. Lord, we've really been encouraged by your word recently in Colossians, recognizing the amazing reality that we have been united to Christ and that all that belongs to him has been given to us not on account of anything that we've done, but solely on account of your love, your mercy, your grace. Lord, we don't deserve any mercy, and yet not only have you withheld your wrath, but you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it's on account of that, Lord, that we want to live in light of that reality that we have been united to Christ. We don't want to just learn what we should look like, Though we do want to learn, but Lord, we want to be transformed. We want to actually live out these commands. Not so that others would be impressed by us. Not so that we'd get attaboys or or pats on the back or just that even that people would like us better. God, we we want to live out these commands because that's what you've commanded. Because that's what you're worthy of. And we want to be this sort of people. Lord, we're tired of of living like this world. For this world has nothing for us. But Lord, you've given us everything. And so help us even now to understand what our lives should look like in light of these truths and give us power to live like this. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I, I'm, I imagine most of you are aware that... Um, Beginning in May of next year, May of 23, all domestic travelers within the United States will be required to um, carry a real ID, is what they're calling it, or a passport just to confirm their identity as United States citizens. One might ask, even in light of that, if, if the United States identifies their citizens through real ID cards, how would heavenly citizens be identified? If one were to confirm that they truly are a follower of Christ, how would it be known? How would they identify themselves? How does one know whether or not a person is truly a Christian? Because as you know, there are many people that claim to be Christians. A third of the world, apparently, claims to be followers of Christ. And clearly that's not true. Or else the world would be a very different place. So how does one know if they really are a believer? If one were to ask you that, what would you say? The Apostle John tells us this. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, 
is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And this is essentially the same thing Paul is trying to convey in his letter to the Colossians. If we recognize that our full identity really is in Christ, then we will be compelled to live like him. So we don't have to pursue legalistic principles for holiness like the false teachers in Colossae were suggesting because we've already been made holy when we were born again and when we were united to Christ. Now, because we've already been made holy, we've been sanctified, now we just need to live out that sanctification, live out that holiness. And in verse 12, where we're going to focus our attention today, Paul gives two points that we need to grasp as we seek to pursue Christ-likeness. And the first is that we would, first of all, recognize that our identity is fully in Christ. And that's critical. And I'll explain why in just a minute. And then secondly, in light of recognizing our identity in Christ, that we would then pursue Christ-like character. Let's look at the first point. Recognize your identity in Christ. Paul says in verse 12, put on then as... God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. We'll stop there. So just looking back a few verses earlier, in verse 9, Paul explained what we need to put off. Namely, what we need to put off is the old self with all its vile practices. And then in verse 10, he tells the Colossians to put on the new self, which he then explains is our new identity in Christ. And we need to recognize the connection between verses 10 and verse 12. Verse 12 really is the fuller explanation of what this new self should look like. What does it look like to live like Christ? In other words, it's what Christians or what Christ followers will be like. They will be like Christ. And so before he lists off all these virtues that Christians should be cultivating, Paul squarely roots those virtues um, as aspects that are already part of their identity. So he's not saying become more compassionate, become more humble, become more merciful. He's saying be what you already are in Christ. Be what you already are. So these virtues aren't something out there that they need to reach out and grasp and attain. They've already become part of who they are. Because they're united in Christ. Now they simply just need to live out that identity. And he starts with three descriptions of what Christians already are. Before he gives this list of virtues they need to pursue. And he begins by saying, by calling them chosen. That is, he wants to remind them that they have been specifically chosen by God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to become a part of their heavenly family. Specifically chosen. As it says in Romans 8.29, in what's called the golden chain of salvation, that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified 
those whom he justified, he also glorified. Emphasizing again, because he chose them, all of these things have followed. Now, just to grasp the significance of being chosen by God, think about how uh, professional sports teams will draft the one player that they want to add to their team, if possible, usually in the first round. Of, of all the people out there that they could pick, they choose that one athlete. That's the, that's the essence of this word, choose. It's choose because God has specifically, specifically selected you or I to be a part of his family. But unlike draft picks, we don't need to prove ourselves anymore. Because Christ has already accomplished everything that God has called us to be. Christ has already proven everything for us. And he wants, he wants the Colossians to remember this. So that they don't feel compelled to pursue these virtues in order to prove themselves to God. In order to gain his love. But they would already recognize, no, you're already chosen. Do these things because you're chosen. Next, he says, do these things because you are holy. You're familiar with this word. It's the word hagios. It just simply means to be set apart for God. Set apart for his use, for, for his purposes. In fact, it's, it's the same adjective that's, that's translated saints back in chapter 1, verse 2. And so as saints, Christians should therefore live holy lives, just as the apostle Peter writes. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, because he is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You see the connection. We're united to Christ. Christ is holy. Therefore, we should live like him in holiness. So when a person is saved, there should be an obvious change in their life. There should be an obvious distinction. In fact, the, the word holiness conveys uh, a, a sense of separation, of strangeness. What they, they used to conform to the world. They look like the world. Now they look nothing like the world. They look different. They're strange. They're different. Sometimes a, a person is said to have a, a holier-than-thou attitude. And sometimes that's just made as an accusation because somebody feels convicted by a, by a Christian's desire to live a holy life. But sometimes, sometimes maybe they can convey that attitude. But that's, that's ironic because all Christians are equally holy. There is no such thing as holier than thou amongst Christians. They're all equally holy because they're united to Christ. Now, some might live out that holiness better than others. But that does not make them more holy. A saint is a saint is a saint. And if a person's in Christ, they're as holy and as set apart as they ever will be. Now that holiness will be ultimately perfected, demonstrated one day. But they are before God as holy as they ever will be already. Just like an older brother can't say to his younger I am more of a child of our parents than you are. It doesn't make any sense. They're equally part of the family. Now, that older brother, because he's older, maybe he acts more mature. Maybe he acts more like his mom or his dad. 
But that doesn't make it more a part of the family. They're all children within that family. They all belong to their parents. Likewise, Paul also calls Christians beloved as they are part of God's family. That is, they are those who are especially particularly loved by God. God has set his affections directly upon them. It's not just some vague love. It's a very directed love, right? A husband loves his wife different than he loves other women. We're called to love all people, right? We're called to love our enemies, but we love our spouses with a very particular love. And God's love here is particular for his children. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, just take a moment to consider this. If God loved you while you were still in your filth and sin, while you were still hard hearted in your rebellion, you really had no desire to honor him. You just you wanted his glory for yourself. If he set his affection upon you and loved you enough to cause you to be born again while you are yet in sin. How much more can you be assured of his love for you now that you have been sanctified and purified and set apart for his glory? In fact, all three terms, chosen, holy, beloved, are given to provide the Colossians with absolute assurance that God does love them. And, it, and he does this because he knows the temptation. If people are not confident in God's love for them, they will pursue Christian virtues. They will pursue righteousness out of a desire to want to make themselves look better. Out of a desire to earn God's love, earn God's affection. And Paul wants them to clearly understand, do not do this. You don't need to. Because God cannot love you any more than he already does. He wants us to have absolute certainty in his love for us. And parents, just consider how much love you have for your children. Or children, the, just consider the love you have for your parents. And then just recognize that God's love for you is infinitely stronger than that love. And Jesus was desperate for his disciples to understand this truth. That's why he goes out of his way in John chapter 16 to reassure them of the father's love for them because he said he was going away from them. And so they asked to show that Christ, show us the father. And this is what Jesus said to them. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I don't say that I will ask the father on your behalf for the father himself loves you. Because you've loved me and have believed that I have come from God. John Owen, in his uh, famous book, Communion with God, paraphrases Jesus' words in this way. Graham, go ahead and you can pop it up there. Don't worry about that. Jesus, in a sense, saying, don't worry about that. I do not have to pray that the Father may love you, for this is his special attitude toward you. He himself loves you. It is, in, it is true indeed that I will pray to the Father to send you the Spirit, the Comforter. But as for that free eternal love, there is no need for me to pray for that. 
because above all things the Father loves you. Be fully assured in your hearts that the Father loves you. Have fellowship with the Father in His love. Have no fears or doubts about His love for you. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is to not believe that He loves you. Because how could the Father show His love more than He already has? Why do I emphasize this point about knowing God's love? Again, because if we're not confident in His love for us, we will, be, we will pursue righteousness and holiness out of legalistic self-righteous tendencies rather than just out of the free joy of knowing how much He already loves us. We don't need to follow any laws or any elementary principles of this world because we have everything that we need. We are complete in Christ. Our righteousness is secure in Him. And it's because of that that we are now then to pursue mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. Because that is now who we are in Christ. And so that's why Paul then brings us to the second point, calls us to pursue Christ-like character. And he lists six virtues, five virtues, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I want to look at these in depth. And not only do I want to define what these, these ideas are, because I think as even in, in English, sometimes we, we have words that don't convey necessarily what the biblical text is conveying. And so we need to understand what the Bible's calling us to in these words. But I also want to illustrate these because often... We don't see these virtues lived out very well because we ourselves are not as mature as we'd like to be in Christ. And so it's helpful to have examples, expressions that we too might follow so that we could better live out Christ's likeness. The first word he uses there is compassionate hearts. Literally, actually, what it says is, have guts full of mercy, bowels of mercy. The word hearts there is splagnos. It refers to the inner uh, bowels, which is where the Greeks identified the seat of the emotions. And so also the word compassion refers to the inward groaning that a person feels when they, when they see another person in misery. They, they groan inwardly. And so this is a very emotionally charged word. Paul is actually commanding us to feel an emotion here. Christians should feel pity, grief, angst when they see another person in distress. We're not stoics. We're not just to remain unmoved when we, when they, when we see a person in distress and just give them a Bible verse. Just tell them and remind them of what is true. No, we should feel distress. We should feel grief. Jesus wasn't unmoved when he encountered people in distress. He didn't just teach them. But he was moved out of compassion to heal them as well as to teach them. Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Same word, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's how we should feel when we look at the news, when we go to the mall. 
when we see people in distress, whether they're believers or unbelievers, we should feel compassion because they are like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus in Matthew 15:32 says he called his disciples to them and he says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And of course, that's what prompts him then to do something about it. And he has that miracle of the loaves and the fishes to provide for them. He didn't just feel compassion, but he did something about it. The point is, we should feel what Christ feels. We're not just commanded to do things in obedience, but we actually are commanded to feel certain ways, feel compassion. We're also commanded to fear. We're commanded to rejoice. Those are emotions. In Romans, we're commanded to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. James commands Christians to mourn and weep. James 4, 9, let your laughter be turned into mourning. Change your emotions. Change your joy to gloom, he says. And likewise here, we're commanded to feel compassion versus disdain or repugnance. We shouldn't have a, well, this just serves them right attitude, which is common amongst Christians. Well, if they would go to the right church or if they would just listen to the gospel, if they would just listen to reason, then they wouldn't be in the mess that they're already in. That is not how Christians should think, especially if they know what Christ has already done for them. We should not respond like Job's friends, assuming that because a person's in a position of distress, that it's, it's fully on account of their sin. It may be but it very well may not be. Consider what the Lord says to Job's friends in Job 49. Very end of that great story. 49.7 After Yahweh had spoken these words to Job, Yahweh said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls, seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourself. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. Well, what is it that they said that was so awful about God? They said, Job, God must be disciplining you because of your sin. And that was not the case. It was not the case. They were wrong. And likewise, we should not fall into the same folly. And when we see others in distress, we should feel genuine pity. And then take action to relieve that distress. And that's the sense behind Paul's next word in this list, kindness. Kindness, quite simply, is care for people that takes action. Not only does it feel grief, or pity, but actually does something about it. Consider Titus 3, 4 about the Lord. When the goodness and loving kindness, same word, of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Point is, God saw us in our distress. He saw us in our filth. He saw us in our hard heartedness. And he didn't just go, well, serve them right. He did something about it. He took action and changed our hearts, opened our eyes that we might see. And kindness, of course, can take many different forms. So we see people in distress or just in hurting or just confused. We should take action and it could be an act of service. It could be through giving financially or materially. It could be in offering up words of encouragement. But the point is, it just doesn't feel it also responds. It does what it can to relieve the distress of others. Amy Carmichael was a woman, I think, whose life was defined by kindness. As a a wealthy young woman, um, her heart was provoked as she saw uh, young ladies in her neighborhood uh, who were unable to come to church in many cases. And she shirked tradition and served and befriended these impoverished young women who often had to work uh, over 80 hours a week just to provide for their families. Many of them were younger than herself. They were called shawlies. And she went out of her way to provide Bible study classes and even invited them to church when they could come. And the rest of the church actually scorned them and her because she condescended to their to befriend them. Years later, when serving as a missionary in India, she, she founded what was called the Donover Fellowship, which eventually became a home for child prostitutes. And she devoted the next 55 years of her life in India to rescuing children who had been devoted to these temples and then raised them as her own. She never had any children because she never married. And she eventually became known in the surrounding community as Amma, which is Tamil for mother. And Amy Carmichael died in India at the age of 83. And she never had her own children. She never married because she devoted herself to seeing this distressing need and did whatever she could to make sure she could care for these young ladies. And yet she once said, when I consider the cross of Christ, how can anything I do be called a sacrifice? You see, she wasn't trying to prove anything. She was responding in light of what she already understood in Scripture. If this is how Christ loves and how he loved me, how then should I love others I see in distress? The next word Paul mentions is humility of mind. This is one of my favorite words in the New Testament. It's typirosune. It means to have a humble opinion of oneself, a a deep sense of one's littleness. It can be translated modesty, meekness, uh, truly having a lowliness of mind. And actually in in classical Greek, it was a derogatory term, right? We often think of humility as as a virtue, even in the United States. Like when we see a humble athlete, usually they're commended for their humility, Not the Greeks. It connoted servility, weakness, a shameful lowliness. So when you hear this word humility, don't think just the kind of humility that we would praise, but think shamefulness, the kind of 
think humiliation. To be a humble-minded person is a person who is content to be humiliated on account of Christ. Who is content to be mocked, to be scorned, to be rejected on account of Christ. And in fact, it's the virtue behind true greatness. Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came to be, not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why Paul told the Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility of mind, same word, count others more significant than yourself. Augustine was quoted as saying, for those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second thing, and humility is the third thing. You want to know how to follow Christ? Be content to be humiliated. That's a very different mindset when you wake up in the morning. Rather than thinking, how can I get a promotion? How can I get honor? How can I get respect? How can I get love? How can I get affirmation? Instead, put on then, what can I do to show that Christ means everything to me? What can I lose to show how much I love Him? Many people are aware that Eric Liddell chose not to run the 100-meter a race in the 1924 Olympics because that heat that he'd be racing in landed on the Sabbath. But what, we, what many people are unaware of, though, is that after those Olympics, he actually left his running career behind in order to serve as a missionary in China. And while serving there, China was invaded by the Japanese. It was during World War II. And rather than fleeing, along with some of the other missionaries, Liddell chose to remain. He stayed behind because he, he didn't he didn't want to leave the people he'd been ministering to without care. And he ended his life as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, serving other prisoners in a miserable internment camp. And all the prisoners in that internment camp were given responsibilities, uh, most of which were highly unpleasant. One person said, about Eric Liddell. I once saw him unloading supplies from the back of a cart. This person was at that point a child. I said to myself, why is he doing it? That's someone else's responsibility. Later I realized he did everything. End quote. This was because Liddell saw prison life just simply as a relocation of his ministry. Earlier, he served the people of China in freedom. Now he just served them in incarceration, along with some of the other people that had been imprisoned. He took turns at pumping water. He cleaned latrines. He chopped wood and rolled coal balls before taking that fuel to the elderly. He swept floors. He took away garbage. He carted sacks and food supplies and helped out in the kitchen. He played chess to stoke the competitive spirit of those who seemed resigned to giving up as prisoners. He did numerous odd jobs, shifting furniture, hanging washing linens, completing various repairs. He put up a new row of shelves for one of the prostitutes. 
And she said that Liddell was the only man there to have come to her room without asking favors. The only man to ever come to her room without asking for favors. A fellow internee, remembering the 694 days that Liddell spent in the prison, said, He was an unruffled spirit with a serene temper and a constantly smiling face. He never let anyone see him downcast, said one prisoner. Every day to him was still precious. He threw himself into it to make others feel better about the situation we're in. Langdon Gilkey was another fellow prisoner, and he remarked that Liddell didn't look like a famous athlete. Or rather, he didn't look as if he thought of himself as one. Gilkey regarded him as, quote, surely the most modest man who ever breathed. That's what it means to be, to have a humble mindset. No matter where we're at, we just do what we can to honor Christ. There is nothing that is beneath a Christian except sin. The next word he lists is meekness. This word actually means to have strength controlled. Soldiers used it in reference to their wild stallions that had been trained for war. And so it's not a word that connotes weakness, actually quite the contrary. It actually means controlled strength. It's the ability to control one's thoughts, to control one's emotions in the face of adversity and oppression. It was the word that God chose to describe Moses in Numbers 12.3. Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And we just studied that book and we, you saw what he put up with. It's the same word that Jesus used to describe himself in Matthew 11.29. When he says, take my yoke upon you and learn, and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And just, just think of how Christ demonstrated this. The Almighty Christ once stood before Pilate who said that he could have him executed on the spot. And of course Christ said, you'd have no authority unless it had already been given to you. And yet, he allowed himself to be executed. Remember when Christ allowed himself to be captured Peter thought that he would take it in his own hands to defend his Lord. And yet Christ said to him, put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Christ in a moment could have obliterated anybody. And yet, in meekness, he allowed himself to be taken to the cross. One scholar said that meekness is that, is that temper of spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing. So it's a, it's a synonym of contentment. Recognizing, God, you've put me here. You've given these people, put these people in my life to serve, to witness to, to love. 
and you're good and I will trust you. James says that it, that meekness is the mark of a truly wise person. James 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The truly wise are the meek. Meekness is the absence of insisting on one's own will. Again, a willingness to be led and submit to those in authority. Peter uses this word to describe wives of unbelieving husbands. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a meek, same word, and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And we can see why. So it's a willingness to be led to and and, and submit to those in authority. And for those in authority, meekness is demonstrating and considering the needs of others above your own. Paul tells Timothy that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with meekness. Now, if he's addressing them with the word of God, he has all authority. And yet he says, even with that authority, condescend to them, understand their plight, understand their, their, that, that they're blind to the truth and appeal to them with meekness. Consider their situation, what they need, not just your frustration or your disappointment. The next word he, he mentions is patience. It's best translated long-suffering, and that literally is what it means. It refers to having a state of, of emotional calm in the face of provocation or suffering. Refraining from complaint or irritation despite the intensity of adversity. The Apostle James exhorts us as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. They didn't give up. They endured. They continued to suffer. It's, it's, it's to bear with the pain, bear with the shame, not throw in the towel, but to keep going. To resist the temptation to cave. And I think the life of Marie Durand is a particularly remarkable example of one who suffered long. In 1730, at the age of 15, she was arrested and taken from her home. And her crime was that she was the sister of a brother who was a Protestant minister. And in order to get their hands on the Protestant minister, the, the authorities captured her and her father and put them in prison. Her brother Pierre was eventually captured and executed a few years later, but his family was still not released. And although Marie could have been released at any time if she just would have agreed to renounce her Protestant convictions, she resisted for 38 years despite living in horrific conditions. It wasn't until she was 53 that she was finally released. Again, she was imprisoned at 15. 
after personally observing the appalling conditions in the prison, she was released because the governor went there observing these conditions and immediately had all of the prisoners released. And here's an account of what he witnessed when he arrived. We found at the entrance to the, low, the, to the tower an assiduous doorkeeper. He led us upward by dark and torturous stairways and at length opened for us with great noise a frightful door over which one almost read the inscription of Dante, All hope abandon ye who enter here. I have no colors with which to paint the horror of the spectacle to which our eyes were so little used. A picture hideous and at the same time touching. A picture which the interest was only increased by disgust. We saw a great circular apartment, destitute of air and of daylight. And in that great room, 40 women languishing in mercy, infection and tears. The governor could scarcely contain his emotion. And for the first time, without doubt, those unfortunate women perceived compassion on a human face. I see them still at our sudden interest, entrance like an apparition, all falling at his feet, deluging them with their tears, striving to find words, but able only to express themselves in sobs. Then when emboldened by our sympathy, recounting their common griefs. And all Marie needed to do during that 53 years of imprisonment. Or she was 53 and she was released 40 some years of imprisonment. All she needed to do was say, I recant. But she preferred imprisonment for the gospel versus temporary freedom. And instead of recanting, these words were inscribed on her prison cell. Register, which in French means resist. An astonishing example of long-suffering for Christ. And we'll continue the rest of this list of the virtues we should put on next week. But in closing... We need to remember again that these lists of virtues are just descriptions of who Christ is. They're descriptions of who our Father is, who the Spirit is. And Paul calls us to pursue these things because of who Christ is, because He is now our identity if we are united to Him. And so we need to remember as we seek to put on these traits we need to do so squarely recognizing that we do these things because of what Christ has already done for us. So this is not something we need to try and attain, but rather something that we already possess. This is your identity. Meekness, long-suffering, uh, humility of mind, compassion, kindness. This is who you are. We just now need to live it out. It's like a, a seed that is planted in the ground. The life is there. The essence of that seed of the tree is there. It just needs to be watered. It just needs to be fertilized. Weeds need to be ripped up around it. But the essence of what it already is, is in the seed. Likewise, if you've been born of the Holy Spirit, his, the seed of his word is in you. This is your identity. Now you just need to let it grow. Water it with the word. Pull out the weeds of sin. Put off all the aspects of the old life and set your mind on things above. 
And as you do that, the reality of what Christ is will be displayed in your life. Not because you're achieving it, you're just letting the light that is already in you shine. And so fix your mind on being Christ-like, love what He hates, love what He loves, and seek to do what He did. Again, as John says, whoever says he abides in Him ought himself to walk even as He walked. Let's pray. Father, we want to walk like Christ. We want to be like Christ. And so we pray that You would pour out Your grace upon us. Lord, we ask that not because we, we, we don't want to impress people. We don't want to be a church that has, has a name that people are impressed with. God, we want to be Christ-like Christians. We want, to, we want to be a church that's defined by genuine love, sacrifice, meeting needs, Lord, every part doing its share, not out of any desire to exalt ourselves in any way, but out of desire to love you and love our brothers and sisters as ourselves. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.